Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the testimony of your people in the book of Acts, which is really the testimony of your dominance through your people, who were in substance no better than any other people. This is not the story of their greatness, but the story of yours. We thank you, though, for their faithfulness, We thank you for the changes that you wrought in them. And we thank you, Lord, that conversion means the same thing now as it did then, and it produces exactly what it produced in them, in us. We thank you for this eternal family. We thank you for this heritage that goes far beyond bloodlines, human bloodlines anyways. Give me grace in this time. Help your people and those who are not yet your people to celebrate your work, and we pray for sinners to be saved and saints to be sanctified, and for a powerful movement of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. I think you'd all agree that irrespective of the kind of warfare, not every victory is created equal. Uh, For example, if you have a bully on a playground and uh, he picks on a certain kid, and that kid gives him a, a run for his money, it's good enough, you know, makes him work for it. Well, then the next time he goes to pick on somebody, he'll choose someone else just because he doesn't want to put out that much effort. Well, that's a kind of victory, but it's not on the same level as the kid that he picks on, punching him right square in the face, stepping over his flailing body and assuming his position as king of the mountain at the height of the playground equipment. And likewise in conventional warfare, you may successfully defend your own borders from a foreign invader, and that's a kind of victory, but it's certainly lesser than invading another country's borders successfully, and that is still lesser than driving all the way to the interior and staking your nation's flag right in the center of their capital city, perhaps one that uniquely bears their name, say their Rome, Italy, or Constantinople. So there are victories, and then there are victories. And today's account from Acts is as squarely in the latter category as any ever has been. This afternoon, I have the privilege of delivering to you all the account of King Jesus shattering the teeth of Satan while they are still in his mouth, stepping over his limp body and staking his flag right in the center of his most sacred places. What is this victory of which I speak? Well, it's well articulated by Paul. 
in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 3 and going through verse 11, but skimming. By revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before, in brief, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that, and, and listen, this is profound, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That means both angels and demons and they were learning from the saints in the book of Acts. They did not know either. They did not understand what this was going to look like. And so they are there in the place of God's unique dwelling, learning in real time. And you talk about an uproarious celebration. I can only imagine. Verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So behold, Satan's Constantinople, the Gentile nations, Nineveh notwithstanding, these were the high places. There was a universally understood agreement, or so it was assumed. God stayed in his box, and the devil got all the rest. And then sure, you had your Rus and your Rahabs and your Melchizedek, who the heck knows where he came from. And sure, now you've had the whole household of Cornelius, but these are the rules, and rules are made to be broken. With everything, there should be at least a little flexibility, but generally speaking, God has Israel, Satan has, well, everything else. And this is the established order. And there has got to be some order. You can't just have somebody coming in and upsetting the whole apple cart. If you want to pick off a few God-fearers like Cornelius and perhaps some of the God-fearing adjacent, fine. But surely those who have asphyxiated on their own soul sewage for a hundred generations must stay in their place. Something has got to be considered sacred. No, actually, they won't remain as they are. And that's not sacred in that way, not to God. He will take them. He will take them en masse, and they will be sanctified by the blood of Jesus. In my humble opinion, if I am permitted one every now and again, I do believe that what occurs in our text today is Satan's second greatest source of rage and regret ever. And the first, obviously, was the resurrection. I can really not even fathom the lament that came from him on the third day, having precipitated the events that led to the crucifixion of Christ, realizing that when he indwelt Judas and brought those events to pass personally, that he had actually been a part of redeeming the human race. Well, here, I think, is the event that is second to that. And it is Christ risen over the Gentiles. And so without further ado, let me step aside and let's get right into the text. We're going to work our way through this verse by verse, exegeting and applying as we go, picking up in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. So as a brief reference to a previous sermon that I gave you from this chapter, this is immediately after the first pope and the worst pope actually took the time to explain his assessment of Cornelius to the plebs instead of just pleading uh, ex-cathedra. 
Right after that, though, comes this, verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. Now, in the situation with the household of Cornelius, the whole paradigm shifted. Everything has changed. But all of the practicalities of that have obviously not yet worked themselves out. However, in each of these places, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, there are also sizable Jewish populations, especially in Antioch. And so these scattered Christians are all obviously Jews. And where are they scattered to? They're scattered to communities of other Jews. And so who do you naturally evangelize most? Well, whoever is naturally in your orbit, your neighbors. And so these Jewish Christians are faithfully continuing to preach the gospel to the house of Israel. And these as such are keepers of the status quo. And honestly, this is a good status quo for them specifically to keep. God is not yet done with the Jews, and so these people have a heart for their own people, consistent with Paul's position articulated in Romans 9. I could wish that I was accursed for the sake of my brethren. Furthermore, you should also understand that these Jewish Christians probably, almost certainly, do not know about the Gentile Pentecost that just happened at Cornelius' house. All right, we've stepped back a bit chronologically in the narrative to the events of Acts 6, 7, and 8. And you read that in Acts 11, verse 19. They were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. Okay, that means they'd left town on account of those events. So they're keeping on, keeping on for that reason also. They weren't privy to these things. But not everybody can keep the status quo. Otherwise, this revival cannot grow in the way that God has foreordained for it to. In order for it to push outside of the margins, you've got to have some red, eat meat, red meat eating uh, and now bacon eating types. You know, the Lewis and Clark kind that want to push things to the limits, that want to go beyond the borders. Or if you like, a group of people that are willing to boldly go where no man has gone before. I'll let you figure out what cultural reference that was. Continuing in verse 20, you're going to get that kind of a group. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And to go back to the open of this sermon, if your objective is to do more than defend your own borders or even to breach the enemy's borders, but again to shatter the teeth of Satan, step over his limp body, and stake your flag right into the center of his most sacred places, then I would say a pagan revival in Antioch, of all places, is exactly the sort of thing you would do. Antioch was a pagan stronghold to a degree that few other places were. You had a massive temple-slash-brothel about an hour's walk away from the city, said it was also extremely prominent. It was a testament to Rome, now become a testament to Christ. But Herod the Great had invested much into the architecture and infrastructure of the city. So did Augustus, so did Tiberius. So this was a really impressive place. The city also even had its own currency. And on its currency was written as follows, quote, Antioch, metropolis, sacred and inviolable and autonomous and sovereign, and capital of the East. Now, I encountered that in my studies, and it was just 
you know, a by-the-way type of thing, but I found it so wonderfully ironic in light of the events that are occurring right now that I thought I might pause on that with you. We might ruminate upon the implications of their description of themselves in light of what now is. We'll start with sacred because Metropolis isn't that interesting, but Antioch is sacred. Sacred to whom? Well, it was sacred to Satan. And it's very sacred to Satan for the following reasons. First off, because it is wicked as the day is long. Church brothel should always be an oxymoron. But in this event, it's not. In or near Antioch were also centers of worship to Artemis and Apollo. And in fact, the uh, brothel is the temple to Artemis. The city was so renowned, in fact, for debauchery that referring to the citizens of Antioch, an ancient satirist, once wrote, the sewage of the Syrian Orontes, uh, that's a river, but he's referring to Antiochians, actually, themselves, has for a long time been discharging itself into the tire. And so he says, you are garbage, and your garbage has been spilling out into other places. You are net exporters of moral trash throughout the ancient world. Many, many roads ran through Antioch. And so odds were pretty good that if you had to go somewhere, you need to pass through the city. And while you were there, you'd probably pick up some of its philosophy, which it faithfully evangelized and proselytized with. Antioch was essentially a great big satanic seminary. Cicero said that it was a place of learned men and liberal studies. And those liberal studies, I can assure you, most certainly did not include Yahweh as creator and Christ as savior and a biblical sexual ethic or moral ethic at all. Antioch was also the seat of governance for the Roman province of Syria. It was Rome's third largest city. So this is quite the spoil of war. But next on the list of self-stated accolades, don't mind if they do, is that Antioch is inviolable. And I know what this means, but I wanted the dictionary definition, so I looked it up. It cannot be broken or infringed, except for that time when uh, King Jesus, of course, conquered them and all of their institutions through a revival. And next on the list of things that they bestowed upon themselves, this is my favorite in light of Acts 11, Antioch is sovereign. I feel like you're not, though. I feel like you have been conquered by the God who actually is. And the last title that they gave to themselves was Capital of the East, and I'm actually quite content to leave them with this because God made the North and the South and the East and the West, and now he is using the Capital of the East to export Christianity to all of them. But how does the church in Jerusalem respond to what's happening, the reports of it as it comes to them? Well, the answer is with neither naivety nor cynicism, but rather hopeful skepticism. Verses 22 through 24. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now, first off, let's understand what the church at Jerusalem is doing and why they are doing it. Barnabas has been sent as a witness, looking ahead to verse 23, a witness whose task is to validate or invalidate the revival 
at Antioch. Is this a work of God or is it something else? Is it an imitation? But the very fact that this is happening is deeply instructive for us because in our day, here is a revival, there is a revival, everywhere there's a revival. And when the report of this comes to us, we just accept it uncritically. And part of the reason for this is because we're willing to grasp at straws in order to justify disbelieving that any second now, fire is going to rain down from heaven and the landscape is going to be adorned with uh, people-shaped pillars of salt on account of where we are currently at. And I understand that impulse. But for as much as I do, we all need to slow way down before we assign the Holy Spirit's name to a satanic imitation. We should assign our own Barnabas to the case. The truth is, though, every local church has a Barnabas at least, and should have a plurality of them. These are the elders. Okay, and that's why I did this very thing not that long ago with the so-called Asbury Revival. Did not take a sermon to do it, but I did address you all with respect to it. And if you were not there to hear that, let me remind uh, those who were and inform you who were not. When I first heard of this revival, I was very hopeful, and I was very hopeful that it was legitimate because though I didn't know a thing about uh, the place where it had occurred at or the denomination, it had grown out of a prayer meeting. And that is exactly the way this works, ever and always. Did at Pentecost, has in every revival in the history of the church, okay, if you're a student of history. So I thought that was really good. I had a hopeful perspective on it. Then I heard a testimony from a young lady who went to the college, and it wasn't good, but then I thought, you know, whatever outlet that was could just interview any random person. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. Then I heard a long-form interview of a gentleman who went to the seminary. And as a seminary student, you know more about what's happening. You understand more of the theology. And that was one of the strangest interviews I've ever heard because in a modern context such as ours, you always hear about grace absent repentance and this was an inversion of that. It was repentance without grace. And so I thought, what the heck is that? And that piqued my curiosity, and I went online and I looked up the university, and I discovered that it was Wesleyan, which I'm very familiar with the Wesleyan holiness movements. They are Pelagians. And to confirm this, I went on their statement of faith, which was a page on the website, and I went right down to the part on sanctification, and sure enough, there's nothing about the progressive nature of sanctification because they do not believe that it is progressive but rather absolute in this life. And so I took you through that and I compared and contrasted that with our 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith to hopefully grow in you the kind of discernment that you need to be able to sniff these things out in the future. Okay, Real damage is done to the church by accepting false works of the Spirit. The gospel is either deluded or defamed or both because this thing that was not produced by the gospel is being called a work of the gospel and gospel living is defamed because holiness in living, righteous living, is only actually produced by the gospel. A great irony of that sort of theology, actually, this repent, 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 holiness, 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 apart from Christ, is that it actually produced licentiousness. Okay, that is the true legacy of Finney. It went towards licentiousness hard and fast. 
because as it turns out, self-righteousness will never actually be an enduring source for holiness. It cannot support the weight of it. Our society is so desperate for some signs of divine wrath being abated that even a faith-based film doing well in theaters is now considered some sort of revival. I hope Jesus' Revolution is a good movie. I don't know. I don't know anybody who personally has seen it. But I have seen conservative news outlets, which I admittedly listen to way too much. Again, going back to my prayer, I'm trying to, trying to achieve more balance. But I, I hear them lauding this, that people are going to see this as though it's meaningful. Okay? In one sense, I'm happy that there is a greater interest in Christianity. But until and unless those ticket sales translate into church members, it doesn't mean anything. In fact, I think if it does mean anything at all, it means that people are searching for a sense of nostalgia because they understand that there was a time not so distant in the past when America was a better place and it was more Christian. That doesn't mean anything in terms of their souls. A first century church vetted these things, and we must also. But I will say, in addition, that there is a precedent for excessive scrutiny that dismisses what actually is genuine revival. And you referenced Edwards this morning. That's a great example of that. Okay, there was a group of men that were sent from sound Calvinist churches to inspect what was happening there, and one of the things that they poo-pooed was the fact that people were having this visceral emotional response. And this is what prompted him to write a history of revival in Northampton because he felt the need to defend this. And his primary point was, when God redeems a man, does he not redeem the whole of a man? So of course they're going to have an emotional response. But those emotions were anchored in truth. Every one of them had a legitimate testimony of Jesus Christ. Every one of them had a real and changed life, and every last one of them was a member of that church as a result of their conversion. Okay, so that address, let's shift gears here. Let me ask you, what's your general perception of Barnabas based upon how he was represented to you in your past evangelical church or churches? When I asked this question, because mine was that he was just sort of a hopeless optimist, like a pie-in-the-sky uh, believe-all-professors type of person, and this is largely based on his response to John Mark in contrast to Paul's, which we'll get to when we get to. I think that's largely misunderstood as well. But based upon our text today, let any notions that Barnabas was, in fact, pie-in-the-sky, believe-all-Christian-professors type die a horrible death. Okay? Barnabas was quite evidently a man of great discernment, and let me enumerate several reasons why. First off, he was chosen as the church's delegate, delegate to investigate this matter. If Barnabas had been so naively positive, so entirely encouraging, that he could not acknowledge fault or flaw where it was obviously manifest, he would never have been chosen to do this. Understand that this is either a work of Christ, and if it is a work of Christ, it obligates the Jerusalem church to care for these dear souls as Christ's little lambs, or it is a counterfeit work of the devil, obligating them to publicly disavow this and aggressively oppose it, but in either event, they've got to get it right, so they're not going to send some slouch, some hippy-dippy, 
happy about everything guy who can't discern truth. A second reason is that he is described in verse 24 as a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So let me ask you, does a good man allow the church to be polluted by a false work because he refuses to see reality? No. Does a man full of the Holy Spirit know and understand truth? Of course he does. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth numerous times. And then finally, does a man full of faith not understand what actually produces legitimate faith in someone, which of course is the true sound gospel? Can he not discern the difference between a sound profession and a spurious one? And thirdly, we know that Barnabas was a serious, grounded, discerning man because of the nature of his encouragement to them. Verse 23, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And by the way, in this council, you have uh, an example of what every good pastor everywhere has said to his congregation and his congregants consistently. This is a warning born of love and grave concern for the souls of Christ's sheep. Remain true to the Lord. Now to apply this to the present, let me say that while Barnabas is not excessively, unduly, blindly optimistic, there are dear saints in Christ's church that do track this way. Although hopefully they're not pastors or everybody in that church is in big trouble. These people, in fact, in many ways are, are enormous blessings because there are not just the hopeless optimists in congregation, there are the Eeyores, if you're familiar with Winnie the Pooh. Everything is bad all the time. They're Thomases. Let's just go to Jerusalem and die, I guess, whatever. Okay? So that helps bring people back to center and the congregation as a whole. But these chronically positive individuals need to understand that that sort of naivety is not something their pastors have the luxury of abiding. Pastors are accountable to Christ for them. And furthermore, when they fall or at least start to falter, the individuals in the church that are experiencing that are the last thought in our head before we fall asleep. They are the first thought in our head when we wake. We bear the weight of that. So to the dear souls who are marked by chronic positivity, Positivity. I am happy for you. I am happy that you are here. But do not presume that when your pastors say remain true to the Lord, it is because they lack hopefulness. Yes, love believes all things and hopes all things, but love is not naive. And neither can your pastors be, or Satan will ruin you and the church through his naivety. So, in the voice of the spiritual father, remain true to the Lord. And pick up in verse 25. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now this is the fruition of spiritual promises through providential means. Here is the spiritual promise by way of reminder. God said this to Ananias about Saul. Acts 9.15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Oh, as Chris noted last week, I don't retell ad nauseum the same personal anecdotes from the pulpit, which is partly due to the fact that I've spent a not insignificant amount of time 
uh, when I was growing up making fun of men for doing that. So I made certain not to do it when I became a pastor. But I do find myself repeatedly restating and stressing the same spiritual lessons. But of course, this is the nature of my position. I preach from the same book. I don't get to be creative. However, I do have a highlight reel. And I think every man has a highlight reel. Things that they really want to emphasize and make sure that their congregation understands. So here is one of my many perennials. Knowing God's specific will for your life is not generally mystical or enigmatic. It is as simple, typically, as open door, closed door, as consistent with his revealed will. Saul slash Paul knew he was the apostle to the Gentiles from his very conversion, but he spent his time for a long time post-conversion ministering primarily to Jews. But instead of hyperventilating because one of the great it's of his life had not happened yet, He went straight to work for Christ in the context that he was in, and then one day Barnabas showed up and said, Saul, you wouldn't believe what just happened amongst the Gentiles. To which I imagine Saul responding, let me guess, was there a massive revival? And are you here to ask me to help in this work because I am to bear Christ's name before the Gentiles as a specially chosen instrument of his to this end? Yeah, I'm like literally years ahead of you on this one. I've had a revival bug out bag in the corner. It's been collecting dust. I'm just waiting. But I have all the essentials there. You need me to like tell you what's going on now? You can fill me in on the road. I think I know most of it. Remember this lesson, Christian. As Spurgeon gave four ways for a man to know if he was called into the ministry. And the third are uncontested. They are all biblical. The fourth is contested, but equally biblical. And it is you must have the opportunity. If you don't have the opportunity, you can have all the internal unction. You can meet the qualifications morally. You can have validation of other church members even. But God will give you the opportunity if he has called you to that. And there's a sense of that at work in laity as well. In my past life, I used to promote events, and I would promote events... um, in existing uh, shopping centers very often. And what you learn is that people are like cattle. They just follow the same traffic patterns over and over again. This doesn't work if you're promoting an an event and you need to put exhibitors in a certain wing that people don't go to as much. So I made these vinyl sticker feet, and they were big. And I'd put them in a path, and people would see those, and it would work. Okay, God does that. There is no need to stress about these things, okay? Honor his revealed will and trust him to open and close doors. Move forward in holiness and believe that he will open up opportunities. Now, before we move beyond the first part of verse 26, there are a couple observations we would do very well to make. First, something is very much amiss in verse 25 and the first part of verse 26, and it pertains to Saul and his living situation, and his familial situation. In English, Barnabas is looking for Saul in verse 25. But in Greek, he is anazateoing him, or laboriously scouring Tarsus for him. He's picking up rocks and looking underneath them. Frankly, he is working far harder to find Saul than should be necessary. Because Saul is in Tarsus, and this is Saul of Tarsus. 
And in their culture, they have ancestral homes that are given to them, that they live in, something like a kaputz, a community that they would be known to be in. He is not there. The likely reason that he is not there is because he has lost that as a result of finding Christ. As perhaps helps us fill in just a little bit more the all things of I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things but count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ as he wrote in Philippians 3. But the next observation I want to make before moving on is that this revival was a apostle or a apostle without apostle. And this goes back to verses 20 and 21. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now much can be said about this and should. But because I have made so many points in the past about the power of the lay Christian as used by the Holy Spirit, here I will emphasize how good this is for the souls of Saul and Barnabas. Very good that this revival began and has occurred through laity and not through them. They will be there afterwards to help organize it, but it didn't start with them. This is a wonderful lesson, especially for men who are going to be used of God in a profound way. If the Lord is pleased to use you, praise Him, but never think that the Lord needs to use you. And they're being taught that right here. Similar thing happened to Robert Murray McShane. He went away on an extended holiday uh, vacation. I, I don't remember. Actually, I think he was gone for like three months, though. And the person who was filling his pulpit wrote to him and said, you wouldn't believe what's happening here. And then Murray McShane got back, and that revival continued to grow, but it didn't begin with him which is a great lesson on humility. And I will also say, before I move off of this point, that I'm going to Colorado in June, so feel free to lead a revival without me. I won't be offended by it, um, and then I'll just pick up, you know, or, or I can do something else when I get back. That's okay if you guys are holding down this pastor thing. Very content for it to happen without me, to begin without me. But it's a great lesson for them. But though the disciples were not used to spark this revival, again, they were certainly used to organize it in the aftermath. Continuing in verse 26, for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now step back with me for a moment, because I want to make a point, the relevance of which will become clear momentarily. And that is that the apostles nor Luke were anything close to antinomians. And if you are not familiar with that term, it means people who essentially say that you can live like hell and get heaven. There is no tangible, practical result of faith. It is mere verbal assent, really. Okay? And then you just go on to live like whatever. Notice the consistent, unabashed stress placed upon Christian ethics to the Gentiles. We'll go back to Peter here in the household of Cornelius. Acts 10, 34 through 35. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right 
is welcome to him. Not distancing himself from the reality that you must live a born-again life, otherwise you cannot claim to be born again. And here again is Barnabas. Remain true to the Lord, verse 23. In fact, the stress placed upon practical holiness is greater with the Gentiles than it is with the Jews. And of course it would be because they were coming from different places. With the Jews, the emphasis was on Christ as Messiah and the internalization of what was previously merely external. Nicodemus is a great example of this. He behaved in a manner that was consistent with the law, and yet the law of God was not written on his heart. And so Jesus doesn't stress behavior as much. He stresses being. You must be made new. But in external behavior, Nicodemus' post-conversion probably wasn't all that dissimilar from pre-conversion. Joy, all that had changed completely. But he wasn't going to the brothel, okay? He wasn't on the bar stool, and then all of a sudden he, you know, had this visceral, incredible change morally. But it's different for the Gentiles. Now, hang with me on this and consider also Luke's accounting of these events. First, There is a great revival. And what does it produce? Verse 26 again. They, Paul and Barnabas, met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They all became disciples. They all became disciples. They did not become Christ-curious. They did not become Christ-casual. They became Christians, which was either a name given to them by their detractors or merely their observers, but certainly not by their fans because they did not have fans because they were a weird and strange religious sect in the eyes of the world or insurrectionists, but nothing good. But even the fly on the wall knew that these people talked about Christ incessantly and lived like Christ, so inevitably somebody somewhere in Antioch first coined this term because it was inevitable. It was obviously best suited to describe them. In my mind's eye, I imagine a marketplace conversation. A gentleman sees another gentleman he is friends with, and he, he says, hey, are you familiar with that new burgeoning sect of the Jews? They're like Jews, but they're not Jews. And the other one says, no. I mean, this is like the land of a thousand gods, so maybe you could narrow it down because, you know, we have our gods and our demigods and our goddesses. And uh, this person who's the third cousin thrice removed of said demigods, so give me some more information. All right, well, they're, they're always talking about Christ. They are Christ followers. They're Christians. They're Christians. Now, the great sadness of our day, of course, is that Christian means very little as a moniker because it means so little to the people who claim it for themselves. Brothers and sisters, I want you to behold the time when we were distinct enough to not have to name ourselves this or that, to not have to claim denominational titles which are regrettably necessary in our day because we have become so diluted There was once a name so suitable, so apt, so inevitable that we would be first called it by the unbelieving. And why were we so distinct? We were so distinct because we knew what a Christian was, we knew how they lived, and we made buyers aware of these things before they ever approached the checkout line. And so we must 
in our day. And so we will if we, like they, are people of the book and we make disciples who are also people of the book. They, Paul and Barnabas, met with the church and taught, obviously, Scripture to considerable numbers. That is what they were anchored in. But not to lose sight of the original point, Luke doesn't even know what an antinomian is. In verse 21, a large number believed and turned to the Lord, and in the subsequent verses, all those who had believed submitted to apostolic teaching and invested their lives in the local church because they were actually Christians, and that is what actual Christians do. Now, am I saying that if you don't live as they did in these broad and fundamental categories that you're not a Christian? Yes. Yes and amen. In a day and age where it is supposed that you can define your own sex, please understand that you don't get to define Christianity. Christ did, he has, and it has not changed in these 2,000 years. And in the same way that Isaac Newton discovered and named gravity, some guy in Antioch merely discovered and named Christianity, whose effects were as tangible and as practical as gravity. And these effects were, of course, radically changed lives in a uniform confession of the gospel. So don't listen to these new Calvinists when you hear them say, preaching holiness isn't grace. No, preaching holiness apart from Christ. Preaching righteousness that is not imputed is not grace. But holiness because of Christ is, in fact, grace because grace, as it turns out, does not leave people enslaved to their sins drowning in the sewage of their past life. That's not grace. Now, it is true that every preacher should feel compelled to say, I am not an antinomian, which is essentially what uh, the opening of Romans 6 amounts to. Should we sin more that grace may abound? God forbid. But there is also the preacher who doth protest too much when it comes to this, who has to say to people who are in the know, that they are not an antinomian constantly because they do not preach holiness consistently. And do you want to know what another always present fruit of the Spirit is for the genuine convert? It's love of the brethren. Verse 27 is the bridge to this lesson. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. I don't feel here compelled to give you a lengthy explanation of New Testament prophets, but I will probably fail you if I give you none. So here is a brief explanation. Prophets of the foretelling kind, telling what would happen that had not yet happened, were foundational and transitional in the New Testament, in the life of the church, and they were used of God in that infantile stage to preserve the church in a special way through an especially critical time. Okay, this famine is going to ravage certain parts of the population. This is going to be very, very detrimental to the church at a critical stage when it is in its infancy. It must survive so that Christianity can continue and thrive in the way that God has ordained it to. So that's the purpose. But it doesn't remain. And Ephesians 4.11 shed some light on this. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now there are those who take prophets there to refer to the Old Testament prophets. That does not make sense logically. If that were the case, they would have logically preceded in order the apostles because they came first. Okay, so this is speaking about individuals like Agabus and Agabus' daughters. Okay, so apostles 
has faded away. Despite what you've heard on the internet, you cannot buy an apostleship for $50. Big A apostles are gone. Little A sent ones were all that. Prophets of this kind have also passed away, but evangelists and pastors and teachers, we are still here. Okay, But now to the aforementioned brotherly love, continuing in verse 28. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now let me say here first briefly that the famine of 45 and 46 A.D. under Claudius, which is what this is, is very well attested to historically by the likes of Josephus and Tacitus and a fellow also by the name of Suetonius, uh, which is a heck of a name. For those of you that are having children, you may want to consider that one. But now I want you to think about what the Lord has done here. And we'll take a, a few steps back to look at this briefly. Christ grew out of Jerusalem, this deeply rooted vine, okay? And from its branches hung this wisteria-like seed pod. And this seed pod got bigger, and it got bigger, and it got bigger, until it became pregnant with potentiality. And then here comes Saul, and meaning to cut this vine down at the root, he actually just clumsily knocks the seed pod off, and it explodes all over the ground and scatters seeds across the world. And then as a result of this, you have this massive revival spring up in Antioch just in time to help literally feed those who still remain in Jerusalem on account of this famine. And oh, by the way, Saul is now the one training this Gentile vine up that Antiochian trellis. Also consider how the Lord is teaching the Jewish Christians. I mean, it's one thing if this relationship between Jew and Gentile goes one way within the church, okay? If the Jews, uh, or rather the Gentiles just relied on the Jews to send them teachers and resources, then the Jews would have had a difficult time recognizing these people as equals, really honoring their contribution within the body of Christ. But here, they're put in a situation by God where they have to rely upon them. Okay, this famine doubtless killed many of the pagans and God-hating Jews. But for the burgeoning church, it only made them thrive that much more. It brings them together. Jerusalem's needs provided Antioch with an opportunity to provide and Jerusalem with an opportunity to learn to humbly rely upon the Gentiles of all things. And this is a great good. And one that God has repeated in most of our lives. Who here has not depended upon somebody else to a great extent in this congregation, either spiritually or materially or both? That's one of the reasons why the Lord puts you into a position of need so that you will learn to rely upon his body that he has given for that purpose. At this point, after all the exegesis and much application from this text has been completed, I wish to leave you with only one concluding thought, and that is to be a desperate Christian, but to be desperate in a way that is consistent with your Christianity. Christian desperation is well seen in the psalmist, as the deer pants for the water, so do I for you. My soul thirsts for you. I think on you in the night watches. That is Christian desperation. 
But very often we are not desperate for God because instead we are desperate because of the condition of this world. A people with a God who can do and has done what we have just observed today should never be desperate because of this world. Okay? The church numerically it waxes and it wanes depending upon how the Lord is moving according to his will. Sometimes God blesses, sometimes he judges. Sometimes we bear more fruit and sometimes he prunes more branches. But always he is the same and always we are his people. And when we are consumed by the degradation of this world and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, only to chase down all this anxious and anxiety-inducing commentary with the briefest tip of the hat to God is sovereign. We belie the fact that he truly is. Look, and remember this. A big part of our function as we come together as a people is to remind each other of the transcendence and the transcendent power of God as it is seen in passages like ours. Again, This is God conquering the world through the blood of Jesus. This is Jesus shattering the teeth of the devil. This is the demonstration of that kind of divine power. What a thing to focus on. And we dare not overlook it in order to get distracted by other things. But when we over-contextualize, we undermine this great focus. In Acts, as in every moment, Satan is responding to God. God is never responding to Satan. And so we must not always be responding to Satan either. Everything cannot be all the time. Do you know what's happening in the world today? Do you know what's happening in the world when it comes to the next day and the next day and the next day? And so on and so forth. Meanwhile, in our minds, the God who is sovereign gets lost in the fog of current events. Sometimes and oftentimes, the best affirmation of God's sovereignty is to say nothing of the chaos without and just preach of the great exploits of Christ. Sometimes it's what you don't say that is more revelatory of what you actually believe. You know, I've read biographies on a number of great men from the past, I should say, men that the great God has used greatly of the past. And the moment from the life of John John Calvin that has stuck with me more so than any other is when he begrudgingly comes back to Geneva after two and a half or three years. And uh, there's all this fanfare because they kicked him out on account of him actually taking Lord's Supper seriously. So now he's come back because though they hate him, nobody can do what he could do better than he could do it. And so if ever there was a time to take a victory lap, it would have been this time. And there's all these people sitting in these pews and they're hanging on his first words with bated breath. And what does he take the opportunity to do? To preach from the book of Ephesians, as I recall, the very next verse that he left off with two and a half years prior to. There wasn't anything he could have said about the supremacy of God that would have communicated as effectively as that. Be careful. And I tell you what, if you need to say to me at some point, you speak too frequently 
of current events, then say it, and I'll receive it. We speak too frequently of current events, sometimes. Okay, remember this context. Our God is transcendent. Okay, He is the kind of God who has no equal, who has no real enemy. The relationship between God and the devil is not that of equals. It's not even that of somebody who's close to being God's equal. It's the relationship between a boot and an ant. And so when the ant moves this way or that way, we've got to be reasonably abreast of it because we need to know how to respond, and certainly there's balance. Okay, one of the reasons we were in the situation that we were in as a church in general in 2020 is because we hadn't spoken to the culture at all. So we can't do that either. This isn't a call to never again speak about what's happening in the world. It is a call again to balance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that it is to have been given it. We thank you for the great exploits of King Jesus, unrivaled, unparalleled, awesome in his dominion, able to exercise his will at will, able to intervene at any moment and to contravene the design of man. The only undefeated being in all the universe. We praise you and we thank you for the awesome dominion of King Jesus. In his name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.